Let's pray and we'll look at the word of the Lord together. Lord, we ask that as we come before you today, Lord, we come in humility knowing that your word has been perfect and timeless from before it was even written by the human hands that you gave to write it through your spirit. Lord, we submit to your word. We know that you have called us to live in a way that is honoring to you, that uplifts the name of Christ, that serves your people. Lord, we desire to do that. So may your words today touch our hearts. May the knowledge of what you've called us to do be evident not only in your word, but through your spirit. And may we respond in action. Lord, we love you and we pray that your word today would be heard clearly by your church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I think it's the rain probably because you guys are a little active and talkative today. And I, I know that that's what rain does to kids. Like teachers know this, like if it's raining outside, the kids are gonna be a little crazy because it's fun and it's different and I feel like, you know, I'm getting some heads nodding like, yeah, I feel a little crazy today. Feels like the rain is making me feel a little crazy. But I, when I was a kid, I remember there comes a point late at night when it's time to go to bed, but you're a kid and you don't really want to go to bed. And I, I hesitate to even say this because it makes me feel old. But this was before the internet, before cell phones, before there were actually things to do at like 11 o'clock or midnight and your options were go to bed, watch the same VHS movies that you've watched a hundred times, or flip through the channels. And the only thing that you would find flipping through the channels were different infomercials. Billy Mays, always selling something. But these infomercials, they, they have a pattern, and unless you have been in any kind of marketing or sales, you probably don't even know that there's a pattern. The pattern is called PASS, P-A-S. It's Problem, Agitate, Solution. They introduce a problem, they provide agitation that makes you feel the problem, and then they offer a solution. Often the solution solves a problem that you didn't even know you had. You didn't even know that you needed your air fryer to also vacuum after it's done cooking your chicken strips. But they're telling you this is a problem that you have, you need it to be solved. I remember one, I don't remember if it was Billy Mays or somebody else, but it was a lady and she had you know, a pot of spaghetti noodles, and she had cooked the noodles, she had strained the noodles, and the noodles were sitting on the counter. So she goes to reach for the spaghetti sauce, and she grabs the jar, and she goes to try to open the jar. And as feeble as she could possibly make it, she struggles and struggles, and then there's no more color, it's in black and white. Things slow down and she's like sweating and like turning with all her might trying to get this jar of spaghetti sauce open. The narrator comes on, has this ever been you? You go to prepare dinner and your kids are hungry. They may not even make it if you can't get the jar of spaghetti sauce open. Your family's sitting at the table and it cuts to the family and they're just all like, 
as sad and like halfway angry with mom because she can't open a jar and the husband's sitting there just like, you know. And so you have this agitation of, well, I don't want my family to be angry with me. And then she remembers for three easy payments of $9.99, if you call right now, you can have, and she reaches for it and it cuts back to color. She opens the jar with whatever like device it is. She pours it on, she stirs it up, she serves it. Her family's like weeping with joy and everybody's happy in her house because this solved all of her life's problems. When I was reading through Acts chapter six, verses one through seven, in a less dramatic fashion, I saw the same pattern of the problem, the agitation, and the solution. So let me read in Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. Luke, the author, continues the narrative story he's telling. He says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Luke here starts within those days. He's telling us that this narrative story going from the beginning of Acts, well, actually, in his gospel from Luke all the way into Acts, has some time gap because what happened previously is now just being added on to. So in those days of the early church, of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, of the rapid growth, the brand new believers expanding by the thousands, in those days, there was also persecution. Peter and John were arrested. The church had given and sold their houses and sold their farms and sold their land and brought the money in those days. And in those days, all of these things were happening. So we have this historical context that in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Your version may say the Grecian Jews or the Greek Jews or the Greek-speaking Jews. Hellenistic is the, the way that they describe the Greek people. So we have these two groups of people, the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews. They're both Jewish people, but they speak different languages. The reason is primarily because these Greek-speaking Jews had lived outside of Jerusalem for who knows how long. They are still nationally Jewish people, just like if you lived somewhere else, you would be American. They lived somewhere else, and yet they were still Jewish. They maintained their Jewish identity, and they probably lived as much as they could 
as a Jew living outside of Israel. Wherever they chose to live, they lived in an area that spoke Greek. At this time, Greek was the lingua franca, which means the common language, much like English is today. You can go to another country and find somebody generally that will speak English. It's a common language that most of the world has familiarity with or learns. That was Greek of the day. So they had gone to another place and probably lost much of their Hebrew or lost much of the Aramaic that they would have known how to speak. So now they're Greek-speaking Jews, but they've come back to Jerusalem. So they come back with not only a different language, but probably some additional culture. They come back with slightly different worship at the temple because they haven't worshiped at the temple. They come back with culture that probably has some offensiveness to the Jews that have lived in Jerusalem and worship at the temple regularly and have lived this Orthodox Jewish lifestyle. So we have this tension, this complaint between the two of them. The tension's obvious because they both worship the same God, but there's differences in what they're doing and how they're doing it. The complaint then comes that the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. A lot of your Bibles will be specific about the daily distribution of food. This was probably more of a daily distribution of money to buy food. We see in the last three, four chapters that people had sold and given the money to the apostles. It would have made a lot more sense for the apostles to give money for the bread today, and then the widows would go and buy their bread. So they probably helped with the distribution of money that they could then go and buy whatever they needed for the day. So then we get the 12 in verse 2. This is Peter and John and James. We have the 12 apostles minus Judas, but then we add back in Matthias. So we have 12 apostles. And in verse 1, they, they call the rest of the people disciples. So the 12 is either the 12 apostles or just the capital T, 12, indicating the 12 apostles and separating them from the rest of the whole group of the disciples. So the 12 summoned the whole company, that's all of the disciples, and they brought them together and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. To wait on tables just means to serve, it means to attend to, to administer, to manage. It probably goes back to, you remember when Jesus was in the temple and they had tables for the money changers. Jesus saw that these Jewish people were ripping off their Jewish brothers and he's mad at them and he flips over their tables. This is the same type of idea that these money tables needed to be served. So the widows would come and maybe there was a log or somehow they kept track of the daily distribution. And the 12 say, it's not right for us to give up preaching so that we can keep log of all this. So we can be here at these tables making sure everybody's getting what they should be getting. But they also agree that it's not right to just have the Greek widows not get what they deserve, the Greek-speaking widows. So brothers and sisters, in verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, 
select from among you, that's the whole company that they brought together, you guys choose people that you believe to be of good reputation, full of the spirit, and wise. You pick those people that you believe would fit that. And then the apostles, verse four, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's what they're gonna be doing while these seven men are administering the daily distribution. Verse five, this pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip and five others. We don't know much about the five others. Stephen and Philip we'll get to in a minute. Verse six, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So these seven men now come before the apostles. The apostles physically put their hands on them to pray for them. And it probably goes back to the Old Testament tradition of when they brought a lamb to be sacrificed to the temple, the patriarch of the family would put his hand on the head of the lamb, which would kind of indicate this lamb has taken responsibility for our sin. This lamb is what we are giving responsibility for our sin to. The lamb would be sacrificed and their sins would be atoned for for that time. So it's that passing of responsibility, the passing of what we would call a commissioning to go and do what you are meant to do. So the apostles give them this authority to go and do the work that God has called you to do. And then in verse seven, the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly. That's kind of what we have here in this passage. And there are many in our community who have yet to hear the good news and our church is full. So how do we take those two things and merge them together? How do we take a church that's full and people that have not heard the good news and solve both, both of those problems? That's not our problem. That's Peter, James, John, the apostles' problem. How do we take all of these new believers that have come and how do we teach the rest of Jerusalem the good news? How do we take the good news to all of these people but we have this problem? We have these Greek-speaking widows who are being treated unfairly. How do we take that problem and these other problems and fix all of them? That's what we're gonna be looking at today in the idea of both good needs and good deeds. When I was reading through this passage, I just kind of asked myself two questions. The first was, what do I see in this passage? And the second was, what do I want us as a church to do as a result of reading and understanding what this passage means? So when I read it and I said, what do I see in this passage? The first thing that to me was the wisdom of the apostles to know when they need to get out of the way and let other people do the work that God has for them. That had to have been hard for the apostles to say, I'm not gonna do something that I know I can do, and I'm gonna turn it over to somebody else and trust that they can do it also. Second thing I saw was that the apostles set standards for the men who would lead. They didn't just say, I don't know, pick seven guys and we'll just see what happens. They gave them direction. 
Pick seven men who are of good reputation, who are full of the Spirit, and are wise, and let them do the work that God's called them to do. The third thing I saw was that faithful men were called to God's work. The people got together, and they chose the seven men that God was also calling to this specific work. It's been said that the church wants better methods, and yet God wants better men. And I think that's what we have here. The apostles aren't looking for strategies. They're not looking for ideas. They're not looking for the most cutting-edge resources to be able to feed these people. They're just looking for men who meet this criteria. And when I say men, most of what we attribute to the men who are leading here, much of it could also be attributed to women. So women who are of good reputation, who are wise, and who are controlled or filled with the Spirit. The last thing I see here is that, verse 7, the church increased as a result of the Word of God. The church did not increase because of the apostles. It did not increase because of the daily distribution of food, because the men had done what they were supposed to do. The word of God spread. The word of God is what held the power to change people, to convert people, to give them the truth about Jesus. And then I was reading it with, what do we as a church do as a result? And the first thing was, be in service to and worship of God every day. Okay, it's easy to be in worship of and be in service to God on Sunday. But there exists a Saturday to Sunday gap. Okay, party hard, pray hard. Right? I'm going to do what I do on Saturday and live how I live on Sunday. When our lives on Saturday have such a big gap that we have to repent of how we live on Saturday because we feel guilty coming to church on Saturday, that's a problem. So we read this and say, I want to minimize that gap where my life Saturday is my life Sunday. My life Saturday doesn't need to be repented of, like God forgive me for all the things I did Saturday and Saturday night so I can come and worship you. But there also exists a Sunday to Monday gap. The Sunday to Monday gap is I worship God on Sunday and then I live like my coworkers live on Monday. So the gap is different, but it's still similar. And Sunday is this holy day that we've set apart to do my best work for God, to live my best life for God. And then I got six days to, to do what I need to do, to live how I need to live so that I can come and worship God Sunday. Our lives must match Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and that gap should not exist. Our coworkers need to see us living the same way Monday that they would on Sunday. If our coworkers came and saw us Sunday at church sitting here and then know that tomorrow or our friends yesterday, man, how shameful is that that you can't really come to my church because this is my place and we can't really be friends because if you know the things that I do and live the way that I live, that's incongruent. It doesn't fit together. It's a very poorly made puzzle that does not match. So we have to minimize that gap. 
That's the first thing that I was seeing here that we need to do. The second was simple from verse three, live a life of good reputation, live a life that is full and controlled by the spirit and to live a life that's wise. And the final thing was pray that God grows our church for the work that he's given us. And I mean that in two ways. Pray that God grows our church deeper, that we individually would know the truths of scripture, that would be able to say, I know what God's word says. I know how that affects and should change my life. And I go and do what I know I'm supposed to do. That the word of God would drive us deeper into a relationship with God. And secondly, that it would grow us wider. That we would then take that, that knowledge that we have, the great commission, the exhortation to go and make disciples of all nations, that that would be our individual command that we would go and grow the church wider. Who cares about the numbers? We want to grow the church wider that more people will hear the good news, that more people will repent and come to faith. If they go to another church, then wonderful for that church. But for us to grow deep, for the church of God to grow wide. Those are the things that I read and I saw for, for me in this passage and for the church in this passage. And as we're looking at this passage, that problem agitation solution, we see the problem, the Greek-speaking widows are being mistreated. The agitation is the people bring it as a complaint, has lots of opportunities to cause problems in the church, and wisely the apostles have a simple solution. Let's pick these men who know what they're supposed to do because they're already living that life and let's let them do what they're supposed to do. This all comes about though in this early church because the church has grown. Growth brings great opportunity and it also brings great challenges. We see that the church first of all has, the church itself is growing in number in verse one that the widows are increasingly having more needs, and that there's also a need for service in verse three, to select from among you. So these needs are increasing. In the same way that the apostles are definitely feeling the challenges of growth, we also in our church are feeling the challenges of growth. So pray for our church. Pray for the people in our church. Pray for the elders, that the elders would have wisdom to lead our church. Pray for the Bible study leaders. Pray for the Awana leaders. Pray that everybody that is involved in some form of leadership would be able to be of good reputation, to be full of the Spirit, and to be wise. You can look around and see that most Sundays were full. It's a good problem to have. It's a good challenge to solve. We're gonna be going to two services in January so that we can have the opportunity to continue reaching the lost in Madeira that have not heard the good news. That those who have heard continue to be encouraged and built up. That we might present them perfect and mature on the day that Christ returns. It's the goal of the church is to bring about new disciples and to present them to the Lord holy and blameless and spotless 
to the best of our ability. But with two services comes other challenges. The biggest one is two services can often feel like two churches. You're at the grocery store and you invite somebody to church and they say, oh, I go to that church. And you're like, I've never seen you. Like, I've been there like a year. What service do you go to? I go to 9.30, I go to 11. That's why we've never met and we've never seen each other. And that's the last thing we want is for our church to feel like two separate and distinct churches. So to that end, we're making plans to say, how can we bring two separate services together to feel like one church, even though we're sitting in service at different times? All of those ideas need people. They all need service. They all need hands to work through the details that we can stay one church even though we have two services. The other option is to build a new building where we can not seat 300, but we can seat 1,500 or whatever that number would be. And then we are still one church. Obviously, the challenge of that is a lot of zeros. You know, it starts with a... 10 and ends with that, six more zeros probably. Something like 10 million or more to build a new building. That's outside of my budget. So for now, we go to two services and we say, Lord, if you want to fill two services or fill three services or put a check in the mail, then we'll just trust that the Lord is doing what he's going to do. And in the meantime, we are doing what we can do with the goal of reaching the unreached with the goal of saying, we want to be evangelistic. One of the opportunities that we have is over the next probably 10 to 20 years, there are going to be at least another 10 to 20,000 houses going up within two miles of our church. On 17 to 99, there's about 2,000 acres that have already been master-planned like uh, on 12 and 41, like uh, Riverstone and Tesoro Viejo, just a mile and a half away from us. On this side where the new overpass is at 27, another, I don't remember, Greg told me, something about 3,000 houses or 5,000 houses right over here with another section that's probably also going to be developed. Those are just the ones that are already planned and already moving forward. That's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people that have not heard the good news, that don't have salvation, that gives us an opportunity to reach those people with the good news. And with that, I want to bring us back to verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they're going to flip everything upside down that they've always done. The apostles are not even going to be involved in this. This is a big change. And for the first time in human history, you see it right here, this proposal, this change pleased the whole company. Nowhere else in human history has a change pleased everyone. And so, I don't think that changes are going to please everyone. As things change, you might not like it. 
You might say, I preferred it that way, or I wish we did something that way. And there's probably wisdom in that. We'll get things wrong, we'll try something, and we'll have to back up and start again because it won't have worked. And that's just part of the challenge of growth. Having more people means there's more things that need to be done, there's more plans that need to be implemented. And so we're trying in wisdom, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to move forward with good changes to meet those needs. So my question for you is, can you be flexible? Because it's hard. It's hard to say, and I always liked it when it was, but it's sometimes hard to embrace change. So we can expect problems. We can expect to need to start again. As the seasons change, you know, the day-to-day weather sometimes changes. I was hoping for like a downpour, you know, free car wash, and then whatever it was going to do, but I got just enough to be muddy on the car. You woke up this morning, you're like, come on. You know, seasons change. Our life seasons change. Kids get older. I sent my wife a, a quote this week. A man said something to the effect of, we want to parent in a way that when our kids are old enough to choose, they still choose to want to be with us. Like, as our seasons of life change, we have to recognize that there are differences. And the church is the same way. There are thousands of churches across America that have five and ten people. They're dead and dying, and there's no desire to change. Like, this is what we've always done. This is what we're going to do. We're not doing anything different. And there's just those five people. And they sit and do the same thing they've always done. It's internal. It's not external. There's no great commission calling. There's just, let's just get together to be together. And we want to be healthy. We want to be growing. And that involves reaching the lost. That involves getting outside of just what we do and reaching to the community. So with those good needs, the first one is growth. Growth generally is met with service, and that's what we see in verse 2. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching and to wait on tables. Select from among you seven men of good reputation. There was an increased need to serve more people. There was a time in Acts 1 that the there were 11, then they added Matthias right after that, but there were 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and there were 120 people. I can do the math, and I imagine that each one of the disciples was talking to one another and saying, hey, do you have some people that you're discipling? The guy's like, yeah, I got 10 of them. What are you doing? Man, I'm telling them about Jesus, how he walked with us, how he talked to us. When he came to us, and do you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he said to live like this, that let our light shine. Like, good, yeah, me too, same thing. Like, you know, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Like, I've been telling these 10 guys that same thing. Like, good, did you tell them about the time? Did you remember the healing? Did you tell them about Peter when he fell in the water? Make sure you tell them about Peter falling in the water. You know, and these disciples are learning all of this. The apostles, hey, did you tell them to tell their kids? Yeah, just like the law says, when they rise up, when they lay down, when they walk along the road, like from the beginning to the end, teach them at home. And their wives, yeah, tell them to teach their wives. 120 people, 12 guys can do that. It's estimated that the church now is 25,000. 
12 guys cannot deal with 25,000 people anymore. So they said, we need more help. We need people to step up and say, I'm going to help with that. I'm able to help with that. And what a joy it is to serve God's people. You know, when we did the fingerprinting last week, I called the fingerprinting company a month ago and said, we need to get people fingerprinted. And they said, how many? And I said, 10, 15 maybe? And they said, okay, we'll send somebody out. We picked the dates. And I called them back. I was like, maybe 20. They're like, okay, we'll send two people out just in case so we don't want it to take forever. And we had 44 people that got fingerprinted. That's excellent. And a, a few weeks ago when we had the baptism, I told this story and I wanted to tell part of it again. A young man that got baptized, I asked him before the baptism, you know, how did you come to know the Lord? What was the situation? And he said, well, I was in Sparks and they asked if anybody wanted to know more about Jesus, to pray to ask Jesus into their heart, to forgive them of their sins. So I raised my hand and I went with Miss Bonnie and I prayed. I was like, excellent. That was the, the pinnacle of where he came to know the Lord. But all the way down that mountain was somebody that came and turned on the air conditioner. And somebody that unlocked the doors. And somebody that went shopping to buy food. And somebody that cooked the food. Because if we don't have food, then people get home at 5 o'clock and 5.30 and they're like, I'm so tired. Do you just want to skip tonight? Let the kids are a mess. They need a shower. They've got homework. Let's just, let's just stay home tonight. So when we have food, a lot more people come and they're more consistent. So somebody cooked the food. But somebody also cleared out the chairs. And somebody set up tables. Somebody served the food. Afterwards, somebody cleaned up the tables and vacuumed and took down the tables and set back up the chairs. And then a dozen volunteers went and sat in the Sparks room and talked to those kids one-on-one. -on -one. And they heard them tell their verses and recite the verses that they'd memorized. And they talked to them and they asked them how school was going. And all of these people served so that one young man could repent. When we serve, we serve together. That's what the apostles are saying is, we need help because we can't do it all. The whole body comes together for the common purpose of growing God's people deeper and bringing new people into the family of God. It's been said that a saving faith is a serving faith. If you've been saved, you've been saved to serve the church. It's what spiritual gifts are for. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So these seven men were called to serve, but these seven men were not the only people who were serving. People were counting money, people were setting up tables, people were taking and making the widows, that, or helping the widows that couldn't get to the, that where the church was meeting, taking them money. There had to be a hundred other people who were involved in this ministry that was overseen by these seven men. With growth 
And with service comes the need for men like this, for more leaders with godly character that can serve well, that are full of the spirit, that have a good reputation, and that have wisdom. It's a unique job description because it's a a job description whose application does not come from the person. Nobody applied for this job. They were selected. The people that selected them knew they had a good reputation. The people that selected them knew they were full of the Spirit, which which means controlled. They lived their life as a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led person. And they knew they were wise. They did not select people that they believed would one day become of good reputation, that one day they would be wise and Spirit-filled. They selected people who were already demonstrating those qualities. They selected them because of what they were, not because of what they might be. They were already living the life that says, I follow Christ and I can live in this way. And they watched their lives and that's how they selected them. So all the good needs, all the good needs for the growing church, the need to serve, the need for leaders, those good needs are met with good deeds. You have to have the needs to then be able to come in and do the work that's needed to meet all of those needs. The needs here are inside the church, but we also see the results outside the church. Inside the church are things like benevolence, meeting needs in crisis, meeting needs to specific groups like the widows, like Zach and Sarah said, with the young adults, with the seniors ministry, with all of the different ministries and Awana and all of the different things we have, those are the internal things. The external parts of the church are things like the food bank. You know, I've been talking with the director of the food bank for probably a year now to figure out how we can get part of the distribution of the food, that they'll bring out the food and we can give the good deeds with the good news, that we can give people food who are hungry and also give them what Jesus calls the bread of life. You know, Jesus did it in John 6. Here's all the food that you need, plenty of leftovers. Also, by the way, you're going to be hungry again. I'm the bread of life. So we looked at with Peter just a couple weeks ago. The lame man was healed in Acts 3 by faith in the power of Jesus' name. Also, you need to know about Jesus. This lame man who stands before you was healed by the power of his faith in Jesus' name, by the power of Jesus. We're not just healing people for the fun of it. We're healing people so that he will be a witness of the miracle that Jesus has done. The good deeds are opportunities for the good news. Also of interest here, the the seven men who are chosen. The apostles took what they knew, they delegated it to these seven men. These seven men were discipled at some point because they were following and walking after the Lord. And they delegated this to these men. These men in verse five, Stephen and Philip and the other five that we know nothing about, those seven men all have Greek names. Okay, they're not Hebrew names. They're not naturally Jewish names. They're Greek names. What that means is the whole company got together, right? 
the Jews, the, the converts like, uh, like Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch, not even a Jew, just a man from Antioch who was a Gentile converted to Christianity, and the whole company, the Jews, the Christians, the Greek-speaking Jews, they all got together and they identified the problem, the Greek-speaking widows are being treated unfairly. And the whole company said, let's pick some men of the minority and put them in charge of the majority. So we're going to say that these Greek men can be in charge of all of the widows, not just the Greek widows, but even the Hebrew-speaking widows. And that ended the complaint. They trusted these men so much that even though they were different, they could be in charge of our people and those people. Those people that speak differently than we do. Those people that look differently, that have different culture, that have come back to Jerusalem. These Greek men can be in charge of everyone. And certainly that quickly put an end. And we get out of that a missionary and a martyr. We get Stephen, the first martyr recorded. He gets the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And we get Philip, who in chapter 8 goes to Samaria and takes the good news to Samaria. And then he goes to the Ethiopian official and he takes the good news, which goes into Ethiopia. And those Ethiopian Christians still trace their lineage back to Philip, a man who was of good reputation, who was full of the Spirit, and who was wise, who was given this delegated authority by the apostles. More good deeds that we see is the specific action to the widows, that they were already giving money to the widows so the widows could be supported. This wasn't a brand new thing that they were creating right now. This was what they were already doing. Good needs. The church has grown. People are coming to faith in Jesus. They're being kicked out of their families. They're being cut off from their friends. Like persecution was already happening. Peter and John had already been in jail multiple times. I think uh, I was looking yesterday and my Bible says in the, uh, the section heading in Acts 5 is in and out of prison. That was just kind of their life was like, hey, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. All right, come to prison. You know, it's like, okay, in prison, Jesus is the way and the truth and life. Okay, get out of prison. You know, it's like, just stop. We won't do that. You know, it's like that was just what they were doing and they were meeting those good needs of the widows. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, support widows who are genuinely in need. Let the church help widows who are genuinely in need. James 1 says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. If you want to have good, pure, undefiled religion, if you want to live that way, this is what it looks like. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. Like that's what it means to live a life that is pure and undefiled before God. Yeah, this church was brand new, had lots of potential for problems. The complaint was the first one. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. I don't think this is the kind of complaint that he's talking about. This was wrong. This was discriminatory. And this was not just a complaint. This was the widows coming and saying, 
the church isn't taking care of us. And the apostles saying, you're right, that's a problem. But even that act of complaining sets this on a path of the Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows, and it has potential to divide the church. Like, I'm with the Greek-speaking widows. Well, I'm with the Hebrew-speaking widows. Well, then you go do your thing, we're going to go do our thing. And we'll just be two churches because we can't align on this issue. The apostles wisely held them together. I can also imagine that from the apostles' perspective, there would have been some pride. Forever we've been doing it all by ourselves. Since the church founded, Jesus called me, right? Remember, I'll make you a fisher of men. So he called me, and now I'm supposed to let other people do it? How, you know, if you want it done right, you do it yourself. So the apostles could have thought. And the people could have looked at the apostles and said, you're too good to wait tables, huh? You can't come and keep a record book of who we gave money to today? You can't come and count some coins that we can, oh, you got to go and do prayer and preaching. But the whole of the group came together. The whole company comes together. The apostles recognize the problem that has been brought to them. The whole company says, we agree that these men need to be of good reputation. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. They need to be wise. Here are the men we want to choose. They're different than you are, so be ready. And the whole company says, we're okay with that. We're okay with these Greek-speaking men serving and caring for our Hebrew widows. We trust them. We know their reputation. And then look at the result of all of that. Verse 7. So... Therefore, as a result of, because of the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God spread, the disciples who were already great in number increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. I want to end here with the priests because the priests were by far the most proud people. They were the men that went and served at the temple. They had a family lineage that they would trace back many, many generations that would allow them to work specifically in the temple. Nobody else would just walk in the temple and be like, hey, this is my job now. You had to be from that family. If you're not from that family, you don't work in the temple. And so they took pride in that, that I, can work in the temple. And the gospel humbled them. The gospel brought these proud men to their knees before the Lord, and they became obedient to the faith. The gospel can bring anybody down to their knees. The gospel reaches the proudest of hearts, the hardest of hearts, and those that we would look at and say, are unreachable. I can do nothing to save that person. There's no way that I can save that person, which is true. There's no way that we can save those people. But the gospel brings the proud and the hard-hearted to the cross. The priests, like you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he dies? And the gospel writers 
say two things, more than two things, but two things that I'm going to call out. The first is that the sky darkened. They visibly would have just been able to see that. The sky is dark. This is strange. The other thing they say is the temple veil was torn in two. So they had, in the temple, they had the holy place and the holy of holies, these two separate rooms. They were separated by this big curtain. We could go in here and do stuff, but only on very rare occasions could they go into this holiest of all holy places. And it was separated by this huge curtain they say was maybe a foot thick, and it was from floor to ceiling and totally blocked the whole way in. The gospel writers say that that curtain was torn. And you remember how it was torn, right? From top to bottom. But only the priests would have been able to go in and see that. So how did the gospel writers know? Because they're not priests. It was probably because of these priests right here. These men became obedient to the faith and they told Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, hey, I walked in and I saw the temple veil was torn. And I started putting it together that Jesus came and said he was the Messiah. So I went back and I looked and I read and I saw in Isaiah that Jesus could fit some of those. And then Jesus said, if you kill me, I'm going to restore this temple, right? I'll bring this temple back to life again. Destroy it and it's coming back in three days. And then in three days, he was raised to life. And it all started to make sense. And so a large group of priests became obedient to the faith because it all made sense to them. They had seen things that did not make sense and they knew things that could not make sense. But when they saw the preaching, when they saw the love for the widows, when they saw the good reputation of these men who were willing to be kicked out of their families, who were willing to be cut off from everything they've ever known, they too said, I want that. You'll never serve in the temple again. You'll never get paid by the temple. You have no more standing here. Your whole lineage, 25 plus generations, ends with you. Your sons will never work in the temple. I don't care. I don't care because it all points to Jesus anyways. And many priests became obedient to the faith. If you've never become obedient to the faith, if you have heard the good news of Jesus, if you've seen good things that Christians have done, We've never repented. You've never said to Jesus, forgive me for my sins. All of the good news is bound up in Jesus that he provided a way, that he offers a way of salvation that you, even though you have sinned, even though you've done the wrong thing, that you don't have to pay for that, that you don't have to be responsible for your sins. Like the lamb that that the fathers would put their hand on and say, this lamb is going to pay for all of my sins. The temple priests would come and they'd grab the lamb and they'd walk the lamb over and they'd cut its throat and it would bleed on the altar. The Bible calls Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus hung on the cross. My hand on his head, your hand on his head, I give responsibility 
to Jesus for my sins. And the Romans crucified him. And they killed him. Just as the Bible said he would. And he came back to life because having completed what God had him do, he came back to life to show that even the grave could not keep him dead. If you've never put your hand on Christ and said, you can take responsibility for my sin because I don't want to take responsibility for my sin. Someone's got to pay the price for my sin. Someone has to bleed for my sin. Someone dies for my sin. I don't want it to be me. Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll be the one who dies for your sin. The Bible says if you believe in him, if you repent of your sin and say, forgive me, I don't want to live that life. That you'll have forgiveness of your sins. That your hope and eternal destination has been forever changed. That once bound for hell, you've now been forgiven and have a new life because of Jesus. That is why a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Because they're willing to give up everything they've ever known because this is better than anything they've ever had. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, thank you for salvation. I'm thankful, Lord, that you've shown me what it means to be saved, what the requirements are for me to be saved, that I might have a new hope, might have eternal life. Lord, thank you for a church that has good needs. Lord, may you continue to grow us both deeper and wider, deeper in our faith and wider in our outreach to the lost community around us. Lord, may you continue to raise up people to serve and to lead and to love that we might be a church who's healthy, that we might continue to grow. Lord, for those who don't know you and have not yet surrendered to you, Lord, I pray that an overwhelming guilt of their sins just be upon them until they relent, they turn to you and put their faith in you, that you have sent Christ to bear our sin, that we won't have to die for it. Lord, we thank you that you've given us examples, that you've given us a way of living, a standard of leadership. And may we all have good reputations, both in the church and out of the church. May we walk by your spirit, be controlled by the spirit that lives in us. And may we be wise. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with, that we can come to you and that we can come together, that we can be the church that is called under one name, in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.